Well, if I have not had the opportunity to meet you before, my name is Grant. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Christ the King, and I want to welcome everybody here at our Bellingham campus. We want to welcome those who are watching at our Ferndale campus, and a, a big welcome to those of you who are joining us online as well. For two groups of people, the Ferndale Church and our online family, what you're seeing and experiencing right now is standard operating procedure. You're seeing exactly what you see every single weekend. But for those of you that are here in Bellingham, this is just a little bit different because I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I'm not actually here. I'm on the screen. And, and I want you just to be able to kind of relax for a moment because Bellingham, here's what you're experiencing. You're experiencing exactly what another large segment of our church experiences on a weekly basis. I hope that you'll just kind of sit back and relax and take it in. Just because we're working with a video screen this weekend doesn't mean God's not going to show up. I believe that God is bigger than any type of technology, that the Holy Spirit works at all times and all places, and that we can be, we can be very excited about what God's going to do even though we've changed the medium by which we're going to be communicating. So I hope all of us will just have an opportunity to enter in and really hear what God has to say to us. We're in the middle of a series called Road Trip. And we've been doing a spiritual journey, or taking a spiritual journey that, that's going to take us to various locations throughout the summer. Growing up, most of the Fishbook family road trips were pretty much to the same location over and over and over again. Every other year, we would take our annual road trip pilgrimage from the plains of Manitoba to the coast of western British Columbia to visit our relatives. It was predictable, it was long, it was boring. If you've ever had to drive across Saskatchewan, you know what I'm talking about. For my part in this series, I'm going to go back to some very, very familiar territory. I want to share a message with you this weekend that I first preached back in 2006. So for this week, on our stop on our road trip, we're just going to pull off to the side of the road and have kind of a little family discussion about a topic. Uh, the topic is honor. And I'm going to start by telling you this. Back in 2001, I needed a car. I mean, I needed a cheap car. My goal was to buy a car that was cheap on gas. And so I prayed, because I try to pray about every single decision, I prayed that God would show me the right car to purchase. I went to car lots, and I scoured them looking for God's perfect car for me. And one day, as I was walking through a car lot, a small blue car spoke to me. I believe the car said that it was a gift from God to my life. It was a 1986 Geo Metro. It was cheap in all kinds of ways, the right kind of ways. And I believed it was God's car for me. I paid $1,000 for that car and I drove it home. And less than 30 days later, I had discovered one truth. That car was not from God, it was from hell. It was designed by demons, which explained the sulfur smell that came out of the heater every time I turned it off. It was an evil car. I had never ran when I wanted it to. Things would just randomly go off. The windshield wipers in the middle of a sunny day would suddenly just weep, 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 and then disappear and stop. Then when it was raining and I tried to turn them on, nothing absolutely nothing. The radio would turn itself on loudly, 
randomly, all by itself, just suddenly, at a very high volume level. The dash lights would wink back and forth at each other. The accelerator had this terrible habit of getting stuck in a very, very fast position, which is no problem if you're a Canadian, but if you're a law-abiding, slow-driving American such as I, that causes a really, really big problem. I mean, your accelerator sticking, that is not a good thing when you're driving the only car that's ever been made that if it went head-to-head with a pedestrian would lose, all right? I hated that car. I would never take that car on a road trip because I had absolutely no confidence in its ability to be able to get me back home. I thought the car was the answer to my prayers. I thought God had given me that car. It was not from God. It was from the devil. Now, here's the interesting thing about the situation. It looked like a God thing. It acted like a God thing. It even talked like a God thing, but it was very, very evident in a short amount of time that it was not a God thing. So how do you know when something, anything in your life is a God thing or not? How do you discern that? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 24, we get to figure out just what it means when something is or is not a God thing. Let me give you some background. Saul's the king of Israel. He's been chosen by God to rule God's people, but there's a problem. Saul is out doing his own thing instead of God's thing. Does that sound familiar to anybody? None of us have ever done that, right? He's been rebellious, outright disobedient. He's been looking for loopholes in God's commandments. Because of, God's, or because of Saul's disobedience, God hauls him into a boardroom and basically says, look, you're fired. You don't get to be king anymore. At the same time, he finds a young man by the name of David who has his own set of issues, but one thing about David was true. He was a man after God's own heart. God basically hires him. He offers him the ultimate apprenticeship and says, someday, David, you're going to be king of Israel. Now, David doesn't try to stage a hostile takeover and take over the nation But Saul hears about God's promise to David, and he freaks out and starts chasing David all over the Middle East. David's running from cave to cave with Saul hot on his heels with one thing, a promise that one day David is going to be the king of Israel. David's got a promise. Saul has an empty dream of former greatness and an unbelievably hard heart. And after months of chasing An amazing thing happens in a little cave in the middle of the Middle East. 1 Samuel chapter 24 says this, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Yes, that means exactly what it sounds like. Not politically correct. That's what the Bible says. David and his men were far back in the cave. Sounds slightly awkward. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner 
of Saul's robe. Now you've got to remember, David had a promise. David had God with him. And suddenly David has an opportunity. God said, you're going to be king. Suddenly the deposed king is sitting right in front of you. And you have an opportunity to become the king of Israel. Even the guys in the cave are saying, David, this is the opportunity God told you about. It's perfect. Slide up behind him. Stick him with your sword. This is over. We're going to go from rags to riches, from running and hiding in caves into the palace courts. We're on our way from misery to happiness. You know, I see these kinds of situations happen in people's relational worlds all the time. I talk to people, and, and when, the, when the topic of the opposite gender comes up, they say something along the lines of, you know, I, I'm just really lonely. I'm just hoping God's going to bring someone and put them right in front of me. So they're praying, and they're hoping, and they're wishing, and they're praying some more, and then suddenly someone with a pulse walks by, gives them a second look, and it's like the heavens open, and the angels sing, and all of a sudden this stranger is a gift from God, and all they know is that God loves them, and they have a wonderful plan for the other person's life. They start dating, and one day the other person's humanity suddenly shows up. One day they go out, and they're gift from God has coffee breath, and they pick their teeth, and, and they listen to country music, and, and they like the New York Yankees, and suddenly this gift from God is not a God thing anymore, and back on the roller coaster that they go. It looked so godly in the moment. It looked so perfect, and that's where David is. It looks godly. It looks perfect. David's been placed right in front, or Saul has been placed right in front of him. In David's world, we could summarize what happened in the cave this way. This opportunity looked like a God thing, it acted like a God thing, and it talked like a God thing. God had delivered David's enemy right into the palm of his hand, or so it looked. And I think there's some truths we need to learn from this story. The first truth I think we need to learn before we even dive into the truth of the story is this. Exercising restraint is a godly virtue. Let's just be real. Waiting's hard for us. We live in an age when everything is instant. Instant coffee, instant messenger, instant gratification, instant answers, instant feedback. And we forget a very, very specific biblical truth that waiting time is often the time that God uses inside of us so that we can discern His truth and His direction. I've found in my experience, snap decisions rarely end up well. I mean, just ask me. I bought a Geo Metro. Didn't work out very well. I believe there's a principle in Scripture that says waiting time is never wasting time in God's kingdom and in God's timeline. So exercising restraint is a godly virtue. There's another little truth I think we need to learn from this story before we even dive in. And the second one is this. Circumstances are a terrible way of defining a life direction. They're a terrible way of defining a life direction. I mean, why is that? I'll tell you why it is. It's because you're depending on human wisdom to determine the direction and the messages of the circumstances. And I don't know about you, but I can make circumstance say anything that I want to. I can take, to take the, that circumstantial stuff that, that seems to swirl around me, even though I don't ever believe in circumstance, believe in providence. But I can take those things and I can make them say whatever I want to. 
I mean, I, I drove in to work just over the last couple of days, and I started counting something. Between my house and Christ the King, there are 17 eating establishments, 17 restaurants, and every one of them gives me a very, very clear message on my way to or from work every single day. Grant must eat. That's what they say to me. I should be eating at Dairy Queen and Bob's. I should be eating at the Hilltop. I should be eating at El Ranchito. I mean, it just sends me the message because they just happen to be on my way to work. If I followed that, it would not be a good thing. Circumstances are a terrible way to define answers to life's tough questions. So if you can't go that route, what in the world are you supposed to do? Well, let's take a look at David's response. David finds himself in a cave, in a situation that looks like a God thing, talks like a God thing, and acts like a God thing. How does he know what to do? Well, I believe the Bible teaches this. David weighed this opportunity against four standards. He weighs it against the law of God, the principles of God, the wisdom of God, and finally, the will of God. Let me say them to you one more time. He weighs it against the law of God, the principles of God, the wisdom of God, and the will of God. That's them. And yes, they are in priority order. You're supposed to, when making a decision, start at the top and work your way to the bottom. But here's the problem. For most Christians, we start at number four and try to work to the top. We do it exactly the opposite of the way that God wants us to, and then we get confused. I mean, can we all agree that this thing called the will of God can get a little fuzzy at times? That sometimes it's a little bit difficult to discern exactly what the will of God is? It's the most difficult of the four to define. And isn't it amazing that most of us start there and try to work our way up? Let me illustrate how it's not supposed to work. Here's a true story from a couple of years ago. A buddy of mine calls up and says, can we get together? I'm like, sure. So we sit down. And this was his statement to me. I'm trying to determine if I should ask blank to marry me. Big decision, huge decision. He says, you know, how can I know for sure? I'm like, you can't. You can't. I'm just like, there's no guarantees when it comes to love or marriage. And he's just like, really? Really? I'm just like, absolutely. You're both prone to sin. That's the bottom line. You're both human. There are no guarantees. But let's go through the list. So I asked the question, I said, do you think it's God's will you should get married? He's like, yes. My question was, why? He goes, you should hear how God brought her into my life. It was an amazing story. And he started just weaving out this incredible set of circumstances as to how God brought the two of them together. I'm like, okay, you know, it looks good at that point. I said, well, that, 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 that would be the will of God. Let, let's talk about the wisdom of God. Scripture says... The wisdom of God says it's not good for man to be alone. I mean, that's a true statement because I've seen single men and how they live. I mean, it is not a pretty picture. They smell bad. They're selfish. They eat the five major food groups, pizza, soda, anything deep fried, meat and Cheetos, right? It's just not a pretty picture. The wisdom of God says that a man is better off when he's with a Woman, I've been living out the beauty of that truth for 21 years. It's true. It's true. So it looks like there, do we have the wisdom of God in this situation? Looks like it. Okay, let's go to the next level then. Let's look at the principles of God. There's a biblical principle that says a man 
should get married if he's willing to love his wife like Christ loved the church. And Christ gave his life to the church. So I asked him, are you willing to die for her? He didn't even blink. It's just like, yes, I am willing to die for her. I'm like, are you sure you're willing to die for her? I talked with somebody a couple of weeks ago who made a very, very good point. He said, you know what? Dying for my family is easy. Living for them. That's a completely different set of issues. But I asked him the question, would you be willing to die for her? Yes. Would you be willing to live for her? Yes. I'm like, okay, so far so good. We started at the bottom. We're working our way towards the top. Then we got to the top. I said, okay, let's talk about the law of God. The law of God says Christians are not to marry those who don't believe in Jesus because they can never share the deepest parts of their souls. And that's the goal of being married, to share your soul with someone. So I asked him. I mean, I'm thinking it's a no-brainer at this point. I'm like, is she a Christian? He's like, no. I'm like, well, there's your answer. You should not ask her to marry you. That would go against the law of God. And he's like, yeah, I know, but, but didn't you hear how God brought us together? I'm like, it was not God. God didn't weave that together because God never violates his own law. And to marry her would violate God's law. And he starts going off. Yeah, but I really love her. I think God put her there for me to, you know, to be able to witness to. And given enough time, I really think I could talk her over to my side. I'm like, it doesn't matter what you think. God says no. He gets desperate. He's like, you know, but she's hot. I'm like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The answer is is no. And I had to ask a question. I said, what do you love more? As a Christian, do you love a law that God put into place because he loves you and wants to protect you and her? Do you care more about that? Or just how you feel? I hope we can learn something from that story. Here's the truth. If you start at the top of the list and work your way down, you're going to save yourself a boatload of pain and time. God's law in this situation was simple. Do not be unequally yoked, period, for your protection and for her protection too. That would tell us something. If we're a follower of Jesus, we should probably be looking for somebody who also loves Jesus because that would be in alignment with God's law. We start at the top and work our way towards the, the bottom. Here's another example. I was having a discussion with some parents about underage drinking. One of the parents in the circle thought that because every kid's going to try it anyway, as long as they were being supervised, it was okay. I'm like, start at the top. God has a law about obeying the laws of the land, and as long as they don't conflict with His laws, we're supposed to obey those laws. They've been put there. And the law of the land is unbelievably clear. No underage drinking. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's perfectly clear. Some of you are like, I don't like that. It doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It's God's law, and it's there and designed to save us both pain and time. Let's come back to David. David is in the cave, and he's got a situation. It looks like a God thing. It acts like a God thing. It talks like a God thing, but David knows it could not be a God thing for the following reason. Reason number one, thou shalt not commit murder. God's law. Reason number two, no one removes a king except God. 
God's principles. Reason number three, God had promised David a kingdom, which meant God was in charge of the timeline, not David, God's wisdom. And number four, David was a man after God's own heart. And a man after God's own heart will know when he's smack dab in the middle of God's will. God's will. David doesn't act even though it looks like a God thing, and acts like a God thing, and talks like a God thing. Let's see what happens. In your outline, there's a, a lengthy portion of Scripture. I'm just going to read it to you because this is what happens in the story. The Bible says, afterward, David was conscience-stricken conscience -stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lift my hand against him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down, prostrated himself with his face to the ground, and he said to Saul, why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I'll not lift my hand against my master because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. Now understand and recognize I'm not guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I've not wronged you, but you're hunting me down to take my life. May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge the wrongs you've done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. David had an opportunity, but he didn't act on it because he weighed the opportunity against the law of God, the principles of God, the wisdom of God, and the will of God. He started at the top, worked his way toward the bottom, and came out with a godly response. What else can we learn from David's response? I believe we can learn this, what looks like a God thing and feels like a God thing, and is suggested by others to be a God thing, isn't necessarily a God thing. I mean, did God deliver Saul into David's hand? Yes. But it wasn't for the reason that everybody around him thought it was. The reason was to allow David to lead his men towards holiness, not towards murder. The reason was to learn how to wait until God's perfect time was ready for David to become king. He wasn't ready yet. The reason was to learn to trust God fully so that even when, when it appeared to be going one direction, that David would wait for God's perfect timing and God's perfect will. The reason was to learn that you never go wrong when you choose integrity and following God's law and God's principles. You know, the reality, if you read the rest of David's life and his story, is that David had to learn some humility. 
If you read the context here, David was actually grief-stricken. Because even to cut off a corner of the robe, David knew that he'd tipped his hand in a certain direction. Even though the Bible says he wasn't guilty of rebellion, he was already starting to move that way. If you'd like to read the rest of the story, you can find it in the book of Samuel. David was understanding and learning something. The sin of rebellion was the very sin that took Saul's kingdom from him. And David was heading down the same path. It wasn't time yet, even though it looked like a God thing and acted like a God thing. And people around him even said, David, it's a God thing. David knew better. David has one more response that I think is going to help him with this decision. He learns this. It's only a God thing if it lines up with all four standards in the order of priority that God placed them. It has to start at the top and work its way towards the bottom. So let's put it to work. Let's see whether or not this particular way of approaching decisions actually works. So let me ask a question. Should I ever have an affair? No. You know why? God's law. God says, you shall not commit adultery. Start at the top, makes it clearly simple. God's benchmark and banner that has lasted me for 21 years is the banner of faithfulness. God's law. There are no more questions about that one. You can't appeal it. You can't talk your way around it. That's God's standard, and He puts it there because He loves you. How about one that's not so cut and dry? How about this one? How about should I take this job? Some of you are looking right now, and you may have even been blessed with multiple opportunities. How do you know whether or not you should take it? Let's start at the top. Does the job violate any of God's commands in any way, shape, or form? If it does, the answer is no. If it doesn't, move on to the second level. Does the job violate any of God's principles of honesty or integrity? Are you going to be asked to compromise in any way? If the answer is yes to compromise, then the answer is no to the job. How about the next one? Does the job violate any of God's wisdom? Is there anything in Scripture that just says you should not be doing that? How about hours away from your family? How about whether or not the job allows you to provide or not? All of that is encompassed under God's wisdom. Let's add another one, a question there. Does it fulfill God's wisdom about using your spiritual gifts? Has God given you a passion in that area? All of those things need to be weighed about whether or not that job violates any of God's wisdom. And lastly, do you believe or do you not believe that it was God's will? Do you notice how, easy, or how much easier it is when you start at the top and work your way down in priority order? I think this is so unbelievably practical. I mean, let's try to make a decision right now about what we're going to do this coming Friday night. Does it violate any of God's laws? If it does, shouldn't be doing it. If it doesn't, I can continue planning. Does it violate any of God's principles? If it does, shouldn't be doing it. If it doesn't, I can move ahead. Does it violate any of God's wisdom? If there's an alarm bell going off in the back of your heart and the back of your conscience that says you're going the wrong direction, that's God's way of saying it's not a God thing. No matter how it acts or talks, or even if people around you are trying to influence you in that direction, it's not a God thing 
because it violates God's will. I don't believe there's any area of our lives to which this does not apply. I believe it's a solid way to ensure that your plans and your direction are always in alignment with God. So let's just take a moment as we get ready to close. I'm sure you have some very big decisions to make this week. I'm sure each and every person in the room has a list of decisions and ideas that you're trying to work through and you're trying to figure out, is it a God thing or not? And you might be confused because it might talk like a God thing. It might act like a God thing. You may have made it act like a God thing. David's response and the way he weighed the standard of God allowed him to make a godly decision. Scripture allows us to make the same decision as well. So in a few moments, we're just going to have a a few moments of silence. And I'm going to let you just take a moment and process through your week. And begin to ask the questions. Is this the law of God? Because if it is, it just makes my decision very easy. Is it a wisdom issue? Is it a principle issue? Is it a will of God issue? So let's take a moment and bow our heads in Ferndale, in Bellingham. If you're watching online, you can do this right now. Let's bow our heads together and simply ask God to give us wisdom, His wisdom to know how to start at the top of the list and work our way towards the bottom. Let's pray. Father God, would you always help us to start at the top? I pray that we as the people of God would know and understand the laws of God. Lord, if we've got a question there, I pray that you would give us the strength and the courage to dig into our scriptures and see and pursue your truth. God, I pray that you'd help us to be godly in our responses and our decisions. I pray that we would hold the wonderful and protective laws of God as our ultimate authority, our ultimate standard. I pray that you would allow us to know both your principles and your wisdom. God, I pray that we would embrace those, that we would would dive into them and that we would run to them first and, and leave our human understanding and our human will out of it. God, I pray that you would allow us to see the wisdom of starting at the top and working our way to the bottom, knowing that by the time we get to number four, if we've done our due diligence with the top three, that we can be assured we are exactly in the center of your will. So God, thank you that we can know how to make good and godly decisions. Would you give us the discipline to get them in the right order? to seek you in all things. We give you praise, God, as the one who leads us with clarity and with wisdom. And we thank you for an opportunity to live this out this coming week. We pray these things in your precious, holy, and life-giving name. And all of God's people agreed together and said, Amen.